Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, episode four, recorded Friday, March 11th, 2022. I'm the Bitcoin Dad and I'm here with Chris. Hey, Dad. Good to be here. Great to be here. We had some feedback. Viewers, viewers, listeners. Listeners like you. Listeners like you were wondering, <laughs> what exactly is the reason you have this podcast? Why are you called the Bitcoin Dad? What's going on? <laughs> so the reason is because... When I was younger, I did have a dad who would explain things to me, and it was really helpful. He'd often draw diagrams, which were pretty incomprehensible, but I could tell that he was was trying his best. And <laughs> That's adorable. I appreciated it. Uh, yeah. And you are a dad now yourself. I am a dad. I'm a Bitcoiner. And so I thought, well, Bitcoin's so young that most of us won't have a Bitcoin dad. So maybe I can kind of rent myself out as your Bitcoin dad and you know, give you some dad advice about the context and history of some of this Bitcoin stuff. Sometimes dad's got to tell you stuff you don't want to hear too. That could be the job of a dad. Sometimes I'd, dad's got to set you straight. I think we don't shy away from telling people things that they don't want to hear. It's true. It's true. We're both dads actually, now that I think about it. So yeah, here you go. I think that counts. And you have onboarded your son to Bitcoin, it sounds like. Yeah, I'm working on all three of them, but the the... My son's the oldest, and he's the furthest along. I heard he operates he, on a Bitcoin standard now. <laughs> I heard his uh, Roblox got hacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jeez, gosh, Metaverse is rough, man. The at metaverse. least, at least it wasn't his Bitcoin wallet. Maybe this will teach him private key hygiene. Totally. I was actually my takeaway is like, well, I guess if it's going to happen, the Roblox account's probably like the best first lesson because there's stuff on there that he values, but it's nothing that really matters long term. So it's like learn now while you can. <laughs> oh, totally. That's actually a perspective I heard about all of the young traders who are getting into these meme stocks like GameStop and was AMC, it a AMC mm -hmm. right? Virgin. Because basically, if you get wrecked young, you have time to recover. And there's no way to learn other than through pain, I think. That's what I say about my first marriage, too. <laughs> ouch. Ouch. <laughs> No, I think there is some, I think I do actually think there's some truth in that. My past experiences with Bitcoin where I didn't properly value it have totally shaped how important and seriously I take it now. I had the exact same painful, expensive experiences, and they actually taught me to be much more methodical and sort of safety conscious when I'm doing anything involving computers and data or, or even in life, frankly. Expensive lessons, but like you said, I, I was, what, in my 20s and 30s, so young enough to recover, young enough to not be de devastated by it. And it, I was gainfully employed, too, at the same time. Right. And is there, isn't pain the touchstone of growth? So maybe <laughs> we just, that. <laughs> let's just front load this pain. Yeah, exactly. At least we'll, that's what we'll tell ourselves so we feel good about it. And on the subject of pain, we have this Twitter. week's news <laughs> and Twitter, <laughs> though this is not as bad as Twitter normally is. In fact, there's some good news from Twitter. They're actually allowing you to access the platform through Tor for the first time. Honestly, surprised by this. This seems like a Jack Dorsey thing and not like a t new Twitter HQ kind of thing. That was my response too. Really? I thought, why did Jack not do this 10 years ago? Oh, I bet, I bet this was started under, you know how these big companies work. They take forever to turn through projects. This could have been a year-long project on their end. For our listeners who aren't familiar with Tor, Tor stands for The Onion Router, and it is a, a nonprofit is behind Tor, I think. 
Yeah, but it was started by the Defense Department, right? Or something like that? It was started by the U.S. government forever ago. Well, the, the Tor Foundation is a nonprofit. I donated it, donate to it via my Amazon Smile account whenever yeah. I use Amazon. <laughs> That's not bad. It is supported by the Department of State, I think, and maybe the Department of Defense financially. And what it does is it provides a web browser that can hide your IP address and encrypt your traffic. The dark web, right? And this is what everybody's talking about when they talk about the dark web. Yeah, the dark web is just fire up the Tor browser, search websites on the dark web, and you'll eventually find a list of websites with very long, complicated website names that all end dot onion. And that's the dark web. There you go. And it, it's actually, uh, it's just great for privacy advocates. It's also great for those that might be in a region that is currently experiencing some sort of suppression of news or certain narratives and dialogues. And maybe there is some sort of internet censorship happening. Tor allows some bypassing of that. And that must be what Twitter's logic was for allowing this here. Because, I mean, they could still block anything they want on the website. But perhaps this allows some individual, maybe in a war zone or something like that, to report on something live which is truly valuable on social media right now. The other thing about Tor is it's not magical. You need to basically be able to access a Tor node, an entrance node that lets you into this sort of onion network that Tor creates. And so some places like China, they basically block all of the entrance nodes. So it's very difficult to use in a very surveilled internet. Yeah. Where we may or may not get a chance to talk about Umbral, depending on how much time we have today. And Umbral is made it super easy to put the Snowflake Tor proxy on. So if you have an Umbral box and you have some bandwidth to spare, with one click, you can add capacity to the Tor network. Oh, wow. That's great. And Umbral is a plug-and-play Bitcoin node and application platform, which if you're interested in getting started with doing some Bitcoin stuff at home, Umbral is a great choice. So... Nothing really negative to say about this, really. I, I would love to see more services adopt this. I only put it on the list because I was tweeting from the Bitcoin Dad pod at Twitter via this Tor site, which is sort of a fruitless activity because I feel like Twitter is kind of like screaming into the void and I don't really know how to use it. I'm kind of a dad in that respect. <laughs> yeah, you need to be a little more incendiary on there. That's your problem. Got Need more hot takes. Oh, I just don't like that. Less useful links, more hot takes. I do, I do always tweet a link. And Twitter actually started blocking me being like, why are you tweeting so many links? <laughs> what are you citing things? Get out of here with this. Get out of here. Our next story is also privacy related. There was an article on BitcoinMagazine.com. Your oh, favorite? Not my favorite. I kind of regret saying the name of the publication now. I was surprised you did. Disclaimer, dad's not a huge fan of the Bitcoin magazine. It just has low editorial standards, in my opinion. How's that for a hot take? I, I mean, it's pretty reasonable because I also agree. But if I didn't agree, I'd, I'd say that's a good hot take. But that's just a reasonable take. I also feel like they just pretty much run anything. <laughs> well, it's weird because they have some amazing articles like Alex Gladstein's Petrodollar piece, which we'll mention later. And then they have all of these sort of editorial pieces by Bitcoiners who it feels like they wrote it for a college or a high school English class or something. It's a it's a complicated thing. We have we have very few original media outlet sources for the Bitcoin space and they were one of the early ones. Anyway, I feel like Bitcoin needs to sort of 
up its promotional game. And this has always been a problem because Bitcoin has no marketing budget, whereas all of these altcoins do, which will be a, something we'll mention later. Anyway, this article is called Beware Bitcoin's Eternal September. And it's a reference to, in the 90s, how every September, college students would sign onto the internet and just flood the internet with inexperienced users. Can attest. The idea is Bitcoin's not really ready for prime time. There's not enough knowledge among users on how to stay private and stay secure. And so this thing could get captured at this point. What do you think, Chris? I think it's definitely the case that a lot of new users coming in are going to do things like keep their coins on exchanges. They're likely completely unaware of the implications of buying Bitcoin that's been KYC'd, know your customer. And they probably don't realize the total scope and depth that chain analysis provides. However, I struggle to really still see where the threat is because absolute worst case scenario, it's still not as bad as the system we have today. Totally agree. I think it's right to be a little concerned about promoting privacy. And we're going to try and do that through the Bitcoin dad pod. Dad thinks privacy is really important because the thing is you only need privacy once you've lost it. So just go ahead and get it. It doesn't cost that much. Doesn't mean you have to make a lot of sacrifices. It might even be better for you to not be on Facebook and limit your access to social media and not associate your social media with your physical presence. There's a concept in here that I toy with myself, though, and that is if we just slowed things down a little bit and let these things sort of sort themselves out before we had massive adoption, it'd be better for everybody. And I kind of see that like what we have, uh, what I think we're going to have just, for example, for like the price of the crypto markets over 2022, that's going to slow things down for a little bit. It gives people a chance to build things. It lets average people get access to Bitcoin before the price skyrockets. In some ways, there's advantages to lulls and slowing things down. It gives time for more adoption to occur. And I think that's their general premise is like, if we just tap the brakes a little bit, stop trying to push this to everyone, it gives things a chance to build out like the Lightning Network. It gives things to a chance to build out, like maybe integrating coin joins into more wallets and maybe finding other ways around chain analysis or perhaps new developments in the Bitcoin protocol itself. Like there is things that will happen over time that we just need to wait for. And I guess the fundamental conclusion here is, is that if we jump in too soon, if we get everybody buying all of a sudden, yeah, that probably would, that probably would get captured by a big few institutions. And then they just have a heyday with chain analysis. Which is lucky Bitcoin has natural cycles because Bitcoin has a halvening cycle every 200,000 blocks, which is about every four years, the block subsidy, the new Bitcoin that have not yet to be emitted, that amount halves. And this happening creates a dynamic, kind of like the economic business cycle that leads to sort of highs and lows. And this cycle seems to be kind of natural and healthy for adoption. And we have a little bit till the next happening. We have like two years, right? It's going to be, I think 2024, 2025 is when the next happening is. So it's going to be a little bit. And it may be a good time to build and have the tooling ready. Like my experiences so far with the Lightning Network would seem to indicate that there's still more tooling that needs to be built around it. The fundamental technology is great, but as a lightning node operator, I could see that the tooling needs more time, needs a little bit more refinement. And if we got those things nailed down and had all of this infrastructure in place, we would be in a better position. I don't know if I completely agree, though, with the fundamental preposition that if we do 
nothing and everybody just joins right now, these things couldn't be built out. In fact, I would almost wonder if KYC Bitcoin, you know, the, the, that's the kind that has been bought through an institution that knows your name, your address, your ID. Most people who join Bitcoin today and right. in the future will probably go through a KYC yeah. on RAM just because it's so convenient and it's integrated with all the rest of your money. Right. And it's just sort of natural to when, when you're used to the traditional finance system, it doesn't seem unusual to be asking these questions. If you're coming from a crypto first standpoint. It's very intrusive. Right. So buying Bitcoin without KYC peer to peer from just another human who has some Bitcoin and wants dollars, it can feel really shady. Like you're going into mm -hmm. the digital equivalent of a dark alley and talking to someone with a bulky trench coat. But, you know, you do it a couple of times and you think, gosh, why the hell do I even have a bank account? But don't you think this is where I was going with all this. This is my conclusion is don't you think that even if the KYC Bitcoin just is continues to grow at the same time, other solutions will grow. Won't people develop, say, wallets on your phone that do an ad hoc Wi-Fi network and allow you to do peer to peer transfers right there on an ad hoc Wi-Fi network like that kind of stuff just seems like it'll continue to be developed and innovated as well, because there will be more of a market demand as they funnel more people to KYC Bitcoin. There will be a natural demand for non-KYC Bitcoin that goes up. You're probably right. One way in which Bitcoin is strictly better than traditional financial instruments is it is a bearer asset. At least with Bitcoin, you have the option of holding it yourself, which is what we encourage our listeners to do. Not your keys, not your coins. So if you have Bitcoin on an exchange, what really is going on there is that the exchange has some Bitcoin and in their database, they say that customer a is due this Bitcoin. And it's a fun, you got to, the way to think about it, not your keys, not your coins implies it, but you really have to realize that be, it's like gold. You can say you own that gold, but if I have it in my physical possession, I actually own the gold and I may give it back to you, especially if I want to continue to do business with you, I'm incentivized to give it back to you, but also that's actually mine. And if I want to get in the car and drive away, <laughs> It doesn't matter what your receipt says. I've got your gold. And that's how it works with Bitcoin. It's actually their Bitcoin at that point. They have it written down in a nice little safe place that says they owe you this much Bitcoin. But like what specific key, which specific coin, none of that matters. They just owe you that amount of Bitcoin. And when you go to withdraw it, they're supposed to give it to you. And they don't have to hold one-to-one -one Bitcoin with the amount they owe. So they might be fractionally reserved. Nobody really knows until the tide goes out and we see who's who's wearing swim trunks and who isn't. It's pretty safe to assume though, because you can watch the wallets that Coinbase and other exchanges own and they'll have in there at any given time, like a hundred thousand Bitcoin or something like that. Right. If, but we if, don't know what the liabilities are. Well, my, I would assume the liabilities are probably pretty extensive if they have millions of customers. So if they have a hundred thousand Bitcoin and they have millions of customers, you can do the math on that. Right. So if you have a hundred thousand Bitcoin with Coinbase and they only have a hundred thousand Bitcoin in their wallet, then there's a problem. <laughs> yeah. 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 It sucks to be Michael Saylor. I mean, that's the Saylor kind of problem is what that is. It's not my problem, <laughs> but it is something to consider. And it's why we emphasize just after it's passed its clearance window and the and the funds are withdrawable, go ahead and take them off the exchange if you can. And just, we probably hit on that every episode, but we keep coming at it because we're really trying to lay that down as a foundation for people to work with. Another thing that's very different about Bitcoin than gold, which Chris just mentioned, is that you can find a, a market for your Bitcoin online. People buy and sell 
Bitcoin online naturally because it's a natively digital asset. And what's actually happening right now is some U.S. senators are trying to isolate Russia from the global gold market. Yeah, this was a shocker to me because I thought like the whole idea about gold was that it was sort of above these kinds of politics, that it was, uh, you know, gold was worth the same amount everywhere. But in this case, they're trying to make it so that no one will sell gold to Russia and no one will buy gold from Russia, which essentially makes Russia's gold worth nothing as far as the market is concerned. Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Essentially, it's it's Senator King. They said that Russia's massive gold supply is one of the few remaining assets that Putin can't use to keep his country's economy from falling even further. By sanctioning these reserves... We can further isolate Russia from the world's economy and increase the difficulty of Putin's increasingly costly military campaign. Mm -hmm. It's several senators. King is from Maine, an independent. It's got Corin from Texas, Hagerty from Tennessee, and Hassan from New Hampshire. It's it's bipartisan support. I, I find a lot problematic with this statement because essentially we don't know how much financial sanctions specifically hurt the current military adventurism in Ukraine. I mean, if they are using old Soviet hardware, then that was purchased 50 years ago. So how do exactly do the sanctions hurt? And it's not like Russia's buying gas. They produce their own gasoline. Yeah. And they also have buddies in India and China that would be willing to make a deal. The simple fact is that Russia is a major energy supplier and Europe, India, and China cannot have functioning economies without Russian energy. The idea that financial sanctions are going to somehow stop this war, it doesn't seem completely thought out to me. And frankly, I think that it's kind of, uh, at this point, getting to the point of cruelty towards the Russian people. In my view, it's like Russia consists of two things, Putin and his army. And the other 100 and is it 160 million Russians just don't even matter or exist. And they're suffering from very high inflation right now because of these sanctions. Yeah. And I tend to agree with you simply because I am not of the belief, really, that the suffering of these people is going to alter Putin's direction. And I also um, believe that Putin can successfully argue the case for this conflict to his people. And I think I also believe that he can successfully just use these sanctions as further evidence of the cruelty of the West. And frankly, these sanctions are making it easy for the current Russian government to isolate their people from the world because two internet backbone providers cut off service for Russia. Yep, CNN and BBC have pulled out of Russia. It really seems very silly because if you, you know, basically there's always going to be a connection from Russian hackers to the rest of the World Wide Web. The military or whoever is in charge will make sure that connection stays open. But you're making it difficult for ordinary Russians to hear news outside of the propaganda bubble. The other thing I think that may have longer negative ramifications on the states and on the West in general is it seems like you're forcing markets to start pricing very important commodities and assets in something besides the U.S. dollar. And that could trigger something long term that significantly weakens the position of the reserve currency status for the U.S. In our last episode, I ventured the idea that Russia would first attempt to use a gold energy standard before it tried a Bitcoin energy standard. Yeah, right. I remember that. And this week, we already see that gold is limited, perhaps, in its ability to be used as a neutral money, mainly because the major gold markets in the world are in New York and in London. 
And if these two countries participate in sanctions against Russia, it'll be much more difficult with a lot more friction to move gold around in order to receive money for resources and buy stuff. Hmm. I do worry the Biden administration has kicked off the regulation discussion around cryptocurrencies in the United States during the context of moves like this. If they are moving to shut down Russia's gold reserves, that shows you how critical they believe these powers are to fighting modern wars. And if Bitcoin gives Russia any kind of breathing room, you could see how they would quickly come up with regulations and, and laws to try to stop that. I don't know how successful they could be, but you could clearly see them giving that a go. I wouldn't worry about that because the Treasury Department itself has said that it doesn't worry, quote unquote, about Russia using cryptocurrency to evade sanctions. The Treasury doesn't, but some lawmakers might. Sure. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of policy is narrative driven, and that's a terrible way to do policy, which is why I think that Biden's crypto executive order is, frankly, an example of pretty good policy because it's not making any rules. It's saying we need to study a lot of issues. Yeah. I, it was probably as positive as I could have possibly expected. So I am grateful that we're starting at what seems like a reasonable starting line. And that does seem like it could be positive because I, I tend to agree with the treasury. I think it's silly that Russia could really do much using Bitcoin. They could probably make some sales, but again, anybody who's going to buy at scale would not have the systems on their end to buy and sell oil or whatever asset it might be in Bitcoin without doing some plumbing, without setting that up. It just seems when you're talking about the kinds of monies and size of transactions and how they can be government to government, it, the idea that the Chinese government could retool and use Bitcoin after they've just got done banning it, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. Right. It would probably take at least another halfening cycle for that to happen. Yeah, that's exactly. It's a good way to look at it. Probably would. And so maybe it won't become an issue while these regulations are being created right now, but it is just something that is on my watch list for sure. Sure. And so not to jump to the executive order quite yet. But in the context of this attempt to further financially sanction Russia through gold markets, we link to two stories. One is a piece by a member of the Human Rights Foundation, Alex Gladstein. His position is that Bitcoin is a tool for freedom right, uh, human rights because it allows people to transact freely and you can't have the government sanction your money if you're using Bitcoin. Basically, this view of his came out of a lot of work trying to fund activists in other countries like NSARS that I mentioned in the last episode and basically being unable to. Navalny's team in Russia, they use Bitcoin. A lot of protesters are moving to Bitcoin. Gladstein wrote this piece on the petrodollar, which is basically the history of the current monetary standard that we live in today. A brief summary is that in 1971, the U.S. defaulted on the Bretton Woods gold standard and entered into a deal, I think in about 75, with the, the Saudi Arabian government and OPEC to price oil exclusively in dollars. And in exchange, the U.S. would provide Saudi Arabia with unlimited access to high-tech military systems to oppress their population and neighbors. And Saudi Arabia would agree to recycle their trade surplus in oil with the U.S. into U.S. treasuries, enabling the U.S. government to continue accumulating large amounts of debt. So you just summarized 40 years of core monetary policy that have shaped everything from the tech bubbles we have seen to real estate, very fundamental stuff that you just touched on there. And it's amazing when you really start digging into all of this, how much it always comes back to 1971. 
Like it, it's like it's everything crazy. that went wrong in American history in the past 50 years, it's like Nixon or Reagan. It's yeah. And so in 1971, after we'd convinced the world to use the US dollar backed by gold as a reserve currency, in 71, we removed that gold peg. So the history there is that in 1945 in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, the Allied powers who won World War II got together to decide on the monetary standard that the world would adopt after the conflict. And just as a side, the most recent episode of Planet Money, which is a repeat, actually covers that original Bretton Woods, am I saying that right? Yeah. Uh, Conference and the characters that were involved there, if people want some details. Oh, we should link to that. Planet Money is great production quality. That coin dropping. I love that coin. Sort of, it like makes my ears salivate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Continue on though, because this is fascinating stuff. Basically, the Bretton Woods system was a gold standard, but the gold, we wouldn't be settling world debts in gold. We'd be settling them in dollars. And then you could always buy dollars or exchange dollars for an ounce of gold at $35 an ounce. The idea was that In a gold dollar standard, every country in the world would use dollars because basically the U.S. government exerted pressure at this conference being the one sort of surviving economy from that war. And having the advantage of pretty much collecting the world's gold so they had one of the few quote-unquote gold-backed currencies. And that's another bit of history. Most European countries sent their gold reserves to New York during World War II. And guess what? They've never left. <laughs> we never gave it back. <laughs> Thanks. Just made it very difficult to hey, get world, it back. Hey, world, not your uh, keys, not your coins. <laughs> this system relied on the U.S. government not printing too many dollars, which is, of course, what the U.S. government did in the 1950s and 60s. The Europeans got wind of this, namely the French and the English, and the French sent a warship to New York Harbor to pick up the gold, and then Nixon closed the gold window. What this led to was high inflation in the U.S. in the 1970s, and this was eventually solved or or tamed with some very high rate hikes by the Paul Volcker Federal Reserve. Right. I think to the point of, I could be getting this wrong because I was very young, but I think in the early 80s, Around when I was born, I think the interest rate was around 13% or something like that. I think it was up to 16 at yeah. one point. Yeah. So basically- and now it's like at 0.2%. <laughs> after the end of the Bretton Woods system, we moved to this petrodollar system, which has been highly inflationary in most of the world and in the US too, arguably. But it's been very good for financial assets, probably because of the way that trade surpluses flow into US treasuries and therefore into US financial markets. But- Why are we talking about this? Essentially, sanctioning an energy producer forces them to sell energy in things other than dollars. Right, which disrupts the whole apple cart. And this is actually what the world wants. The Europeans have been agitating for settling energy bills in their own currencies since 1998, which obviously makes sense. Europe imports all of its energy. Why would they want to pay dollars for that? Yeah, I mean, they have to go through the whole hassle of buying dollars before they can buy the oil. It's basically subsidizing the U.S. government. So no one wants the world dollar standard. And frankly, my view is that the American people probably shouldn't want it either because this standard results in manufacturing and middle-class jobs moving overseas. It also seems to be inevitable that creates just endless military expansion, which I don't think most of the U.S. public is a fan of. 
I mean, this dollar system requires a certain amount of military support for Saudi Arabia and OPEC, but it also enables the U.S. to fund endless deficits and military spending is it's just never even questioned. And apparently there's no accounting for it either. The Pentagon failed a big audit. They couldn't even justify how they'd spent billions of dollars. It is very easy to sustain multiple wars when nobody notices the cost for it on a balance sheet or their taxes, right? It's very easy. So it right, it yeah. has let the U.S. lead a very expansionist 50 years since the end of the war. And we pay for this sort of military spending via inflation. Up until recently, this inflation has been in asset prices, which most people didn't complain about. But now it's moving to the real economy. And the question is, will it continue? I suspect it will, because we have a lot of pent-up inflation over the past 40 years, and it's sort of hitting us now. And it's a worldwide market. Most of the West is experiencing pretty significant inflation, even if they cook the numbers a little bit. Energy prices will always, always impact inflation. And uh, when you have 40-year high inflation, and you have historically high energy prices, and historically high prices in things like w copper, iron, wheat, sugars, those are going to be felt at all levels of the economy, right? It's, it's, they're such base level things. Yeah. And energy is an input to everything. And so when energy goes up, everything else goes up. But by forcing Russia to settle energy in a different currency, which to be clear, the sanctions try to carve out a place for Russia to sell oil and gas for dollars. Because they know. They know how critical this is. Like they've had to very selectively with a scalpel try to leave certain financial institutions still in the loop. But the thing is, the legacy financial system is sort of like a big mess of pipes all run by private entities. And so just because you say it'll work, it doesn't mean it will. Well, and if you were Russia or any nation who may be looking at the situation, wouldn't you be doing the math right now of the risk that you face? Wouldn't you be doing the math thinking, hmm, it seems like for real true independence to have real sovereignty and control, well, we got to get off the standard. I, I just, it, it seems like it starts a snowball effect. And when you freeze foreign, a foreign central bank's FX reserves, and then you try to go after their gold reserves, it kind of demonstrates that not your keys, not your coins. If you're holding your assets with a third party, they are vulnerable to the masters of the financial system, which happens to be the U.S. today. It seems like the trend of de-dollarizing energy markets is accelerating. Frankly, I think that's a huge shift. That's something that I think we should all try to keep an eye on. I agree. And I think it's something that is not going to be properly explained by most traditional institutions. First of all, it signifies a massive shift in the way things have been for the last 50 years. Those kinds of things are generally pretty hard for people who have benefited from this existing system to recognize it first. So a lot of your traditional institutions, sources of information, they may not even really be fully grasping what's happening at this point because it's always been this way their entire lifetime. And now there's a, and that's how things work in large economies like this is it's, it's always been this way until one day it's no longer this way. And it's incredibly complicated because it's very hard to understand all of these invisible economic forces and Policymakers don't even understand them. And then in addition to all this, we have this new technology, Bitcoin, arriving, and it's further complicating the matter. But luckily, it's also providing us with sort of an escape hatch from the current system so that we can move assets and wealth into a new system 
where we are secure from seizure and inflation. Yeah, and learning about Bitcoin has also been very educational in learning about sound money in general. So I think learning about Bitcoin right now is teaching people a lot about what the core rotten aspects of the current system are. It's very fascinating. Interestingly enough, for me, it was the opposite. I'd actually studied economics and through Bitcoin, I learned about open source and free software. It's like Chris and I took this from the opposite direction. Yeah, and ended up in the middle. (laughs) Well, I just want to say thank you to the self-hosted podcast. Those are some really great guys over there. Two very good looking, intelligent gentlemen that host that podcast over there. Really? How how good looking? (laughs) So good looking. Like both tens? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Both of them. Uh, It's a self-hosted podcast we do over there. It's all about running your own infrastructure, your own services, things that you can run at home that we've learned the hard way. Maybe you don't want to run home or talked about as well. Looking at you, mail server. Although there's ways. But both my buddy Alex and I are huge fans of hosting our own stuff. We talk about self-sovereignty when it comes to finances. This is self-sovereignty when it comes to your digital life, your data, all the stuff you use. That's what Self-Hosted is all about. It's selfhosted.show. We do it every other week. Go check it out. We have a whole back catalog now. Uh, You can hear all about my Raspberry Pi obsession, which is ridiculous. In fact, our latest episode was about the last 10 years of the Raspberry Pi, the things that we think have just been total successes and where we'd like to see the Pi platform go over the next few years for self-hosters. It's all at selfhosted.show or search for self-hosted in your favorite podcast app. And I just like to note that last week you mentioned that your co-host on the self-hosted show, Alex, is getting a Trezor to maybe eventually try something with Bitcoin. Yeah, he's dabbling. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a flag. You know, that's a moment because Alex struck me as one of those Linux people who sort of wouldn't touch cryptocurrency with a 10-foot pole. You know, I think I agree with you. And I think Alex is starting to see the difference between cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin because he's not interested in things like Ethereum. He's not interested in that stuff. I think he sees Bitcoin as the one that's truly sort of a, a store of long-term value. Yeah. And that actually is our next section, which is ICO history. And The Verge, which is famous for running one of the worst build your best gaming PC articles in history. Oh, yeah. Boy, two of your favorite publications in this week's episode. (laughs) Well, I feel like it's important to acknowledge people you don't agree with when they're right. Sure. And The Verge really nailed it on this profile of Justin Sun, the the founder of Tron, the current owner of the, the BitTorrent Corporation, the owner of Poloniex, the European cryptocurrency exchange. This guy is prolific. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, he's been quite the salesman for Tron as well. The reason I thought this was an important article is you might wonder, if Bitcoin is so good, how come there are these ICOs? How come they briefly rocket up in price and then, I mean, then they generally go to zero, but what's driving this? And the answer is people like Justin Sun. Personality driven. So an ICO can be looked at as an initial coin offering. It's a way to distribute coins to early adopters and bring in money. It's loosely based on the IPO concept, initial public offering for the market, but nothing actually like that. <laughs> well, it, it actually is exactly the same. It except, is, except for it doesn't go on any market. It's not a public offering. Well, I mean, it, it, they're <laughs> generally sold through exchanges. Oh, okay. Crypto exchanges. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, so okay. it, the exchange okay. is sort of an analogy, analogous right. to a uh, stock market. Right. Okay. Yeah, I suppose it is. <laughs> and if you look at it structurally, an ICO is an IPO. So initial coin offering equals initial 
public stock offering. Public. So if you think of it like a stock on a crypto exchange or on a regular, okay. And Justin does not want you to think of it as a stock because he says Tron is a utility token. It's not a stock. So don't regulate me, please. what? What? A utility token. I mean, this is just such a funny idea. So if Tron is a utility token, then buying Tron would be analogous to hoarding quarters for your laundry machine. I better get $10,000 in quarters because I might want to do a lot of laundry. Okay. (laughs) Hey, man, that's starting to make sense. (laughs) Well, the point I'm making is that the idea of an ICO that's a an an altcoin that's a utility token doesn't make sense as something you would buy as a financial asset because if something's a utility, you buy it when you need it. You don't hoard or store up utility tokens. You don't store up tokens for the theme park rides just in case they run out of tokens next year. Like there will be enough tokens. And a utility token is not the same thing as a governance token that might give me some sort of voting power, separate things. I think that governance tokens are in the same classification as useless tokens as utility tokens the idea is that it gives some sort of functionality to you on the platform not really it's really just tron is just tokens on a blockchain except it's not as decentralized as other blockchains it it actually has a master node structure i think so there are only like 21 nodes on the chain so like 21 tron companies oh okay oh i bet you love that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 definitely the appearance of decentralization is sort of all Tron bothered to do. What's interesting is Chris is looking at the chart right now, and it's very pumpy. It has these peaks, and then it shoots down. But here's the trick. That's because you're looking at it in dollars. Because if you look at it in dollars, you could say, okay, well, you know, if you bought it, bought it in March 2020, you might be ahead today. Now, look at Tron in Bitcoin. Value Tron yeah. over Bitcoin. Yeah. And it is a chart that goes from the high left to the bottom right. It yeah. just goes straight down. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see here at the ICO, the initial coin offering. So essentially when they went public, you see this massive spike up here. You see the lead up to it as well. And it jumps in price, it jumps in volume, and it has never, ever, ever returned to those highs. Right. There's a nasty name for an altcoin that does this. It's actually in the congressional record. but Really? I want to keep this a family-friendly podcast, so I'm not going to say it. (laughs) Yeah, so the thing that strikes me is kind of all this seems normal to me, to tell you the truth. We see this a lot. What strikes me as interesting is that ICO was in 2017, and here we are in 2022, and people are still talking about Tron like it's going to be a thing. But if you just look at the chart, it seems obvious that it never is going to get back up to those highs. And people are still talking about Tron because Justin's son is a really clever promoter and he's done a lot of interesting structural things to sort of keep the Tron ecosystem alive. For example, he bought the Poloniex exchange and he removed all the KYC. So you still had to quote unquote identify yourself to use the exchange, but you could upload a picture of Daffy Duck and they'd accept your picture as a verification. Ah, so the word got out. It was an easy... Easy way to get in without real identity. And he sort of made Tron the major trading pair on that exchange. Look, I'm not advocating for KYC because I think it's a, an insidious and not necessarily a good thing. But what he did was he, he created an easy sort of on-ramp into sort of money laundering and all the, all the bad stuff you, we, you sort of don't want. He made it very easy to do that, but he made Tron the vehicle. So it sort of pumped demand for Tron and kept it alive. 
Mm-hmm. He, of course, refutes the claim that it was easy KYC, but they kind of became famous for it, so it seems unlikely. He's also just an interesting sort of narcissistic megalomaniac. I think I can say that neutrally if you read the article. He gave this speech to his uh, C-suite team, executive team, about how he was Mao and they were his generals. And someone raised a hand and said, didn't all of Mao's generals end up murdered? And Justin said, yes, yes, they did. He also was recently in the news because he was trying to pressure the Ukrainian government to do a Tron airdrop, which didn't go over well. Talk about a narcissist. Yeah. Who cares about your Tron, Justin? People are dying. No, 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 no. Do the airdrop. I know. It strikes me too, as I think the way this cult of personality can drive investments, if you want to call them that, or spending, and then kind of work out over and over again to essentially be a con man scam. And the amplification effect that YouTube and social media in general give these scammers, they give them platforms to essentially have zero cost advertising. It allows for these narratives to just take off. And so I think when people look at the quote unquote cryptocurrency market and they think it's full of scams, it's because they're sensing this kind of stuff happening all the time. They're not totally wrong. We included this because if you're getting interested in cryptocurrency and you're looking at Bitcoin looks expensive and you see all these other coins and you think, well, if they're on the exchange, there must be something there. It's not like the exchange would list some garbage fake product. Right. This is Coinbase. They must be, they must have checked this out. The answer is yes, they will list it. And most of those projects have someone like Justin behind it. And so even though it's easy to take the mental shortcut and think of cryptocurrency like a stock. And so, well, if it's a company, then there's a founder, right? That's good. There's someone driving this thing forward. Wrong. It means that there's someone who only wants to dump this thing on you and get your dollars probably so they can go buy Bitcoin. Yeah. And the reality is the only way you'll ever know for sure or not is time. And it may cost you something in the short term. And that's why I recommend looking at the price of all of these altcoins in terms of Bitcoin. Because if you buy the altcoin, your opportunity cost is Bitcoin. You could have bought Bitcoin over the same period. And over any long period, Bitcoin outperforms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> would that money have just been better to put into some index fund? Or would that money be just better to put into Bitcoin? And generally, the answer is always going to be yes. And the other thing about this article is it's clear that people like Justin Sun are using inside information to manipulate markets and to sort of buy the bottom, sell the top. Look, if you have that inside information, you go for it and you send me a message on ProtonMail and you give me that inside information too. (laughs) But if you don't, then I don't recommend playing in these waters because you're just a little guppy getting gobbled up like sharks, sharks like Justin Sun. I guess that means no dad coin then. Dang. (laughs) You keep on mentioning the dad coin. I just think it's a great name, man. It's a great name. I, I guarantee it already exists. Oh, that's, you know what? You're probably totally right. There's a, I, we, there's a weed coin. Yeah, of course, right? It probably doesn't have anything to really back. Okay, so let's see. If I go search for, yep, there is indeed a dad coin. And it's worth? 13 cents. Huh? More than I would think. It's worth more than Tron at the moment. <laughs> okay, you hear, well, you heard it here first. Dad coin is worth more than Tron. The price action has been rough compared to Bitcoin too. It's correlated with Bitcoin when it's down. And when Bitcoin's up, it de- it decorrelates. <laughs> Dadcoin, do not invest. Launched in 2008 by a team based in Singapore. Dad chains. (laughs) No, God, stupid.
Uh. Yeah, so many scams out of Singapore because they had a whole um, blockchain technology plan to to get tech companies to do blockchain there, and you know most of the tech companies are ICO scammers. In fact, the DAO hacker he worked at one of these companies. Go figure. Okay, and our last section is feedback. We don't have any corrections from last week, so apparently we're getting better. Well done. How about that? Or they didn't know that there was a contact form or an email address. Right, which is Bitcoin Dad Pod at Proton Meal, Proton Mail. I wouldn't want to eat Proton Meal. Might might get you energized. Dot com or at B Dad Pod on Twitter. Or is it Bitcoin Dad Pod? I really, I'm not very good at Twitter. Mm. Sorry. Dad sucks at Twitter. <laughs> email is probably better. <laughs> I actually had an email exchange with Mike, and okay. it was it was pretty pretty interesting. And my sense is that Mike he mentioned the New York Times, so I think he reads the New York Times, which has been a publication that I think is good in many ways and pretty bad when it comes to Bitcoin. Never heard of it. I'm kidding. <laughs> I know it's a pub. It's it's the newspaper for East Coast elites, I think, or is that the Wall Street Journal? Hmm. Maybe the Financial Times? No, it's the Financial Times, yeah. (laughs) I know, you can't even like afford the Financial Times. It's so expensive. Mike wrote in to ask about the morality of Bitcoin in Russia. So I think he listened to the first episode and I, I had mentioned that Bitcoin is an option for sanctioned countries like Russia. And his question was, is it moral to own this thing and invest in it and use it when it could be used by a country like Russia to finance a horrible atrocity? That's a deep question. So not to be flippant, but I actually heard a funny tweet from another listener who goes by Crypto Kyle. He was jokingly saying that he really struggles to use dollars knowing that they are stained with the blood of foreign wars. I think Mike has a point in that if a nation is doing something bad, isn't it good that we try to stop them. And so maybe sanctions are good in that respect. I, I agree with the sentiment. Unfortunately, I think that the desire to do something is, it's mainly a, a psychological desire to not feel powerless. Because at the end of the day, when a nuclear power decides to destroy a neighboring country, you can't do anything because they're a nuclear power. Yeah. And they, in the case of Russia, have been planning for years. Right. So they've already taken a bunch of financial steps. So I don't think that there's a strong argument for currently disrupting the Russian economy will actually stop this war right now. I think this war is sort of dialed in and is probably going to run its course, unfortunately. Yeah, there will probably be financial ramifications for a very long time as a result. And these sanctions will help make sure that happens for better or for worse. Right. And the problem I have with sanctions is that the, the 160 Russians that didn't get to vote for their leader because the election was rigged, they're the ones who are suffering now. And certainly some of them eat the propaganda and are on board with this war, but they don't have the facts. And they live in a society where if you disagree, you go to jail. Over 10,000 people disagreed last weekend and they were sent to jail in Russia. Yeah. You think that the calculus is most likely that you have to make the citizen up the yeah, citizens upset enough that they apply pressure on their leadership. Um, and I could see that working in a, in a more representative government structure like here in the States. Right. But that doesn't work in a dictatorship because if you push people to desperation to the point that they're going to brave the bayonets and bullets of a violent dictator, well, that's completely immoral because you've basically harmed a large number of people 
to basically force them to take a dangerous course of action that's not good for them and their outcomes. Yeah, so there is that element of it. And Bitcoin gives those individuals a second option. And I, that's often the the scale at which I look at Bitcoin's impact is on the edges. Yes, you're going to have your, your billionaires who don't need to be even richer that get richer. You're going to have your dictators that use it to sidestep some sort of international sanction. That is absolutely going to be an edge case. But I think your more average use case scenario is the financial freedom that it brings to people that didn't have tooling before because the institutions didn't provide it to them. The thing that is different about Bitcoin is that the traditional financial system is permissioned. You need permission to get a bank account. You need permission to send money. And Bitcoin is not permissioned. So it means that people who can't get a bank account, who don't have ID, they get to participate alongside the billionaires and evil despots who can also use it. Yes, so exactly. at yeah. the end of the day, money works best when it's neutral. If you have US dollars in your wallet, well, you're using the same system as North Korea, and they're bad, bad guys. You know, we already use monetary systems that enable people to do bad things. Yeah, and that's I just mean, what money does. It enriches the Saudis, and they seem like not particularly great characters. The thing is, is much like money, technology is neither inherently evil or inherently good. It's how it gets used as a tool. Like you said, North Korea, Russia... China, they use Linux. I also use Linux. Right. And that doesn't mean that you're an autocrat. Right. I'm not enabling Putin, right? I'm not enabling the Russian government to run their mail servers. I just also use Linux because it is a neutral technology used for good and bad. Right. Why would you handicap yourself by using Windows right. when I, it's not as good? I think we will look back at China's decision to ban Bitcoin as a pretty big mistake. I think they will get short-term financial stability for long-term financial loss by being outside of that system. And I think we will watch one day, at least the Chinese government for themselves, reverse that decision because you simply can't afford not to be participating in it. And if that means also Putin is participating in it, while unfortunate, it just seems unavoidable. It's much like the internet and the TCPIP protocol itself. You can't use the internet without the, the TCP IP protocol. Right. And any bad actor, somebody, you know, planning the Boston Marathon bombing is using TCP IP when they're sending a message over WhatsApp on their phone. Essentially, the point we're saying, and we're not trying to punch down on Mike because I think it's good to think about these things. Yeah, I think it is a good, it's a, like I said, it's a deep question. It's worth thinking about. Especially coming out of the New York Times where you have Paul Krugman just talking about how Bitcoin is for online predators and money launderers all day long. Not to go on a rant. At the same time, if you are looking for financial advice, just read Paul Krugman's column and do the opposite, do the opposite. of what he suggests. <laughs> yep. You will outperform the mark. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, the, the Nobel Prize is not a certificate that says you know everything about everything. It says you studied a long time to learn a lot about one tiny, very specific subject. And maybe that's all you should talk about, Paul. <laughs> yep, that's a pretty good way to put it. That's all we have for feedback. You want to mention the new way people can provide feedback that's still getting sorted out? There's a, a new system you've been working on behind the scenes. Yes. This is something that Chris has already been using for his Jupiter broadcasting shows. It's really interesting. It's called Podcasting 2.0. Essentially, it's podcasting, but incorporating the Lightning Network, which is a layer on top of Bitcoin 
that allows you to send micropayments. Along with a bunch of other really great open source feature sets, standardized way to do chapters, transcripts, to provide multiple types of audio enclosures in one feed, bunch of really cool stuff. But oh, that I think, just sounds like really good technology. Yeah, stuff that I think because of the centralized nature of podcast directories, we haven't really seen these innovations. That's something, and they're trying to solve that now. That's why they're creating a new index, an open source index. And the lightning payments is a big part of this. The idea is that as the podcast, you have a little entry in your RSS feed that the podcast clients can read, and then they know what address to send micropayments to. And I mean, payments can be as low as like less than one cent or as much as you want, right? And the great innovation that they've done along with this is they're using a memo field in the Lightning payment system to include a message along with it. So you can directly communicate with your audience. You can directly communicate with your host. I'll be honest, when I first heard about this, I was a little skeptical because I thought, oh, great, we're taking something I love, podcasts, and we're adding money and we're going to monetize it again. And it's just, it's like when video games started getting monetized, it's just going to take the fun out or something. And I couldn't have been more wrong. I was so wrong. It's so fun to use a podcasting 2.0 app because you're listening to a podcast and you can like just reach out and for a tiny amount of money, like no money at all. I can, but, but something you can reach out and you can say, Chris, you are spot on. Raspberry Pis are the bee's knees. Or you can say, Chris, going to disagree with you on that. You should be running Windows NT. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as a podcaster, you get, if they want their name, they don't have to include a name. You get the episode they were listening to, which just that little bit of data that says, when I wrote this to you, I was listening to episode four of you know, the Bitcoin dad pod, uh, that is a huge bit of Im relative information. So I know what they're responding to. Like I've never had that before, but the other thing, cause I've been podcasting for 15 years and I have used every form of feedback on the internet from YouTube comments, Reddit comments, Insta Instagram direct messages, oh email, God. YouTube comments, the worst. This is the thing. The easier, the quote unquote cheaper it is to leave a comment, the least amount of friction you get the worst comments. So YouTube and Reddit, tend to be the absolute bottom of the barrel quality con comments. The ones that generally are attacking you, that kind of stuff. Twitter is slightly better because it's associated with a username. You got to have an account. There's a little bit more friction there, but it's only slightly better. Email gets to another level. And I'm, of course, I'm skipping a bunch of things. Email usually has well thought out replies, usually some links. Somebody really, you know, I thought about it before they sent you an email. So it generally has in the past, it's been the best. But now boosts have come along. And because there's just a tiny amount of money, even if it's like two cents. It disables spamming. Like yes. I can't send a million two cent payments. That will be real money. Exactly. And it means that people think about it more. What I have found is the quality of engagement is better. Even if it's just a, hey, I, you know, just thank you so much. Assigning a tiny amount of value to that message changes the nature of feedback for podcasts. It has been such a positive force for our shows. It, it really, like our, some of our best show ideas now are coming over these boosts. It's really my favorite form of communications ever, simply because it does just have that small amount of value attached to it, which is also great for the podcast. And if you think about it in terms of like advertisement, sponsors will pay thousands of dollars to get two minutes on your show. 
somebody sends it a boost and they attach a dollar to that message at scale fundamentally changes the podcaster's entire, I would say, revenue structure, monetization structure. Because you're now, you're, you're focused more on the audience, you're focused directly there and less on selling to the advertisers. I mean, it's a big deal. And the more it scales, the bigger a deal it becomes. When I discovered this and sort of began to try it, it just made me think this is what fixes the internet. Because what makes YouTube and Google and Spotify, these walled gardens so sticky is that there's no way to directly monetize the audience. And that sounds bad. You're the audience. You don't want to be monetized. Except, who wants to be monetized? <laughs> Nobody. Well, except you are monetized because if you're listening to an ad, you're being monetized. For Chris's Jupiter Broadcasting podcast, weirdly enough, his ad reads are fun because it's all nerdy stuff that I wanted and I'm happy to have heard about it. But for most podcasts, I, I honestly lose respect in the ad reads. There are so many ad reads that are just obvious scams. And I understand you, they offer the most money. Scams offer the most money because they have great margins because they're selling nothing for something. So they have amazing margins. So they can offer a lot of advertising. Wait, let me tell you about this new monthly box of junk. Can I get you subscribed to this monthly box of junk? No, because first let me tell you about a way to own fractional shares of <laughs> a painting Picasso right. made of a butt. Oh man, I just heard an ad. I just heard it. It was a YouTube ad for fractional shares of some art thing. <laughs> Maybe fractional shares of NFTs. Hey, how about fractional shares of a podcast? I mean, why not, right? Like, what do you just make Are fractional shares of anything? You're right. Dad coin. That was a scam. <laughs> but da right. Dad Dow, Dad Dow is That's legit. legit. Yeah. Because you can vote on what we talk about. Yep. Oh, the votes are in. Today we're talking about cats. Huh. That's weird. This is also being applied, although I don't vouch for its quality yet, but I am watching it. You may have heard of Stacker.news. Have you heard of this? No. It is a Reddit-like clone that is based around lightning payments for good posts and good comments. So good posts and good comments get lightning tips by other users of Stacker News. It's all transparent. They keep track of it everywhere. And so what you find is... It incentivizes less comments, but the comments that do show up, people go out of their way to add sources, links, additional information because they're trying to earn a couple of sats. Mm. And it's so far been interesting. And they just held a story today. that It seems like now there's 5,000 podcasts that are on the Value for Value Lightning Network. So that's huge. And the Bitcoin Dad Pod is not yet on this network because the Bitcoin Dad, being a Linux guy, thought, okay... Umbral, this node in a box implementation, it's got all the stuff to do this. So I'll just run it, but I'll be a little clever in how I run it. And well, I borked it. And now the blockchain is rescanning and it's been days and Bitcoin isn't broken. At the same time, these decentralized networks, they have engineering trade-offs. And when you bork it up, well, sometimes you got to rescan and it can take days. So yep. It is still, I like, I would not want to monetize the entire business this way yet. Cause I like, it's, if it's I, too early. It's too early. I would need something that's more robust that has failover support and that kind of stuff. However, I hope that in, in five to 10 years, I hope this is how it's done because like I said, I, you know, by that point in five years, I'll have been podcasting for 20 years. And when I started podcasting, we didn't even call them podcasts. We burnt them to our, our audience downloaded mp3s and burnt them to cds and what did you call it back then shows 
We just call them shows. Like an internet show? Yeah. I have an internet show? Mm-hmm. In fact, we were really resistant to the name podcast when it, we didn't like it at all. Why? We felt it was pejorative. It was it it diminished what we were doing. It's not an iPod thing. We were doing an internet show. We had YouTube, and you know. We just, oh, I see. Now I now I embrace the term. It's fine. Right. Um. But the the thing that's fundamentally shifting is podcasting is becoming extremely central uh, centralized, and Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Google, Stitcher, Libsyn, they're spending big money to have podcasters move over to their systems close up the RSS feed, lock it down to their app, and it's going to crush the ad market for independent podcasting. And actually, I've run into this already because someone wrote in and said, I got your podcast, but it wasn't on Spotify. Yeah, that's intentional. Spotify is not an open platform. I think their business model is garbage. I think their support of Joe Rogan is garbage. And I wouldn't associate with them even if they did offer me a fat sponsorship deal. Uh, maybe if they paid in Bitcoin. <laughs> so more to come. Hopefully we'll be a podcasting 2.0 podcast in the future. And that might be a fun, if you're new to Bitcoin and crypto, that might be a fun way to experiment mm-hmm. because you could play with a new technology and send us money. Yeah. And- Sounds great. I think it is it is going to be a great way to onboard just because you're not dealing with thousands of dollars here. It's not going to change your life. You're talking five, ten bucks, right? Uh, and it's a great way to get exposure to technology and use it in one of the more cutting edge ways because lightning is still kind of new as far as Bitcoin is concerned. I mean, lightning it's not really, is very but, new. Well, okay. I, I mean, yes, in Bitcoin terms, it is. It is very new. There's a lot that can go wrong with yep, lightning. It's still so. being built out. It's been, but it has been one of the most things I have, fun I have had in tech in years. Right. I find it just, I find I mean, it exhilarating it, to play with it. It's amazing how well it works for something that was invented two years ago mm. and is still relatively experimental. It's also the first time that I've ever, since I've been running my own business, which has been over a decade, it's the first time that I've ever not had to go through some middleman to get my money. Like I don't have to go withdraw from PayPal. I don't have to connect like a Stripe account. Hold on. There's a transaction processing fee. Sure, sure. But at the end of the day, when somebody sends- oh, no, a, I, w- I was joking. Well, there, are, there can be channel fees, but they're very, very low. Right. Uh, but it, by the, when somebody sends that value to me, it ends up on a hard drive in my office, like a real storefront. Like when somebody would come in, and, if, if I had a storefront and somebody came in and bought a shirt and handed me cash and I put it in a register, but I never had to put that money in a bank. Like I, I am the bank. And I've never had that experience as a small business. I've always had to go through a bank, a service, a middleman, and ask, can I please have my money? And then they take a fee. And sometimes they say no. They, PayPal has said no before, and it has screwed us. And it feels like a real, a real form of freedom, self-sovereignty. Like, it's, it's a complex emotion I'm feeling. Like, it's, it, it feels like an important milestone for my business. And this is great. Why wouldn't we want people to be able to hold their own funds and not be exposed to the counterparty risk of large, complex financial institutions. That seems like a win-win-win-win to me. Yep. And for the audience, it means that the show is more focused on super-serving those boosters than super-serving an advertiser. And as a content creator, that's always a really delicate line that you have to walk. And so anytime anything comes along, any system that comes along and tilts that towards the audience is a win. Hopefully, we'll be able to play with that in the future. 
And now you know, if we start talking about Tron, it's because Justin's son got to us before you did. This has been the Bitcoin Dad. <laughs> this has been Chris. Sorry, that really got me. <laughs> he, uh, he also created a BitTorrent ICO because he bought BitTorrent and then created like a BitTorrent token. So I mean, he's a he's a multiple ICO pump and dumper. Maybe he would want to sponsor. <laughs>